Dispatches from Afghanistan, from protests to Pangaea, with the Taliban suicide squad and the war wounded in between. It has been a wild week on the ground in Afghanistan, to say the least. It has been mayhem and madness, especially when it comes to the amount of misinformation I am seeing perpetuated across the mainstream media and social media. Images of fights that took place years ago in countries that are not even Afghanistan are being passed for fact and stories told three persons removed are also circulated without due diligence. It's dizzying to wade through and journalism, no matter how hard we try, will always be an imperfect science. Nonetheless, now more than ever, I remain firmly committed to the importance of bearing witness to events as they unfold inside a country I love so deeply. Protests rage on. The Taliban responds with dispersal gunfire. Shortly before midday Tuesday in Kabul's Shari Nau district, hundreds of young women joined by hundreds of men stormed toward Afghanistan's presidential palace in vehement protest against the Taliban's rule. Death to Pakistan. Death to the Taliban. Death to the ones who cheated our country, they chanted. But as the momentum built, the Taliban dispersed the crowds in minutes by firing endless bullets into the air, prompting scores of demonstrators to flee in various directions, disappearing amid the throngs of shopkeepers and curious onlookers. Eyewitnesses described the demonstration as comprised mostly of men, of women, sorry, with most expressing upset toward Pakistan. Retired, one protester lamented to me later, sheltering inside a bakery after running from authorities. This is the only thing we can do now. However, Taliban intelligence authorities on the street, who belong to the group's elite forces, offer a different take on the situation. We talked to some protesters, and they did not know why they, we, they were even there, a Taliban commander told me as a cluster of his special forces gathered, stressing that they were being paid the equivalent of $10 to $20 by a quote-unquote special Masood organizing group to cause unrest. Yet the morning's mayhem did not deter the women. Around 3.30pm, another protest proliferated in the same Sharinau district, filled almost entirely with women appearing to be in their 20s. The hundreds of women massed in small packs on street corners, armed with handwritten signs sh shouting freedom, as they began their daunting walk into the unknown and into a potential hail of gunfire and handcuffs. We want what we worked so hard to achieve, a prominent Afghan women's right activist who was not present at Tuesday's commotion said, we don't care if it costs us our lives. We have no life anymore. Inside emergency, Kabul's hospital for the war wounded. It is a place as necessary as it is tragic, a fortified hospital in the center of Kabul, brimming with broken bones and bullet battered children, those who have lost limbs and loved ones in the bloodshed that has gripped Afghanistan. It's run by the Italy-based NGO Emergency, of which I am a proud board member. One of the most prominent problems Emergency has encountered since the Taliban takeover is the group's celebratory shooting in the air. On Friday, the rapid gunfire injured 12, two of them children. One of the injured children, around seven years old, was admitted with a bullet to the back of the head, and another young boy, age unknown, was hit in the chest. Both are fighting for their lives. After complaints to the Public Health Ministry, Taliban authorities announced a public ban on such behaviours. The halls and quiet wards of emergency, founded in 2000 under the first Taliban rule in Afghanistan, are an amalgam of fear, misery and triumph. 
A child who sustained a head injury in a blast calls out to his mother in wincing confusion and yelps like a wounded animal, and a blinded man reaches out into nothingness, exposing arms healed with deep layers of pink. Another young person with a hollow chest and protruding cheekbones vacillates between anguish and laughter. His name is Abdul, and he thinks he's about 14 or 15, although emergency staff predicts his actual age is probably closer to 18. Only there is no official birth record, and it is likely that nobody will ever really know. Abdul lost both his legs days ago to a landmine in Logar province, yet he smiles and folds his fragile body into prayer, accepting his new reality with a beleaguered shrug. Several other young men, all in their 20s, tell me they were shot in disputes with people they knew near their homes on the edges of the city over the past two weeks, highlighting the area's manoeuvre away from war and into an uptick of violence and crime. Sadly, some patients are haunted by having become burdens on their already low-income families. They worry they can no longer provide and will require medical attention and constant, financially draining help for the rest of their lives. September 11, 20 years later. The 20th anniversary of September 11 struck a deep chord, as I'm sure they did with almost every American, whether they were alive when the tragedy unfolded or not. The memory of what we were doing and what we were thinking when we heard about the 9-11 attacks is planted in our graveyard of memories. 20 years ago, I was a high school student cocooned by books and ballet classes, watching my tiny television in fear that the whole world was crashing. Still, I did not know then what impact Afghanistan, the land on the edges of the earth where the horrible plot was brought to life by Al-Qaeda, would come to have on my life, not just personally, but professionally too. But in the elastic years after the 2001 attacks, after the US forces usurped the Taliban regime from power, it was hard for me to process how and why the list of lost limbs and lives from that day kept piling up. They're bombing Al-Qaeda, a weeping woman once said to me after losing her husband in an attack on the eastern edges of the country. But they're bombing my people too. Every Afghan has a war story, even though almost all of them never chose to go to war. Even now, Afghanistan's younger generation, who know nothing but conflict, aren't entirely sure what it has all been about. The day before the northern city of Mazar-i-Sharif, the place where the US first entered in the 9-11 aftermath, fell to Taliban control last month. College students looked at me quizzically when I asked if they knew about Osama bin Laden. No, one 22-year-old said, cocking his head and staring at me strangely. Who is this? Stumbling upon the Taliban's secret suicide squad. Stuffed toys languid on a shelf near the building's entrance. Playground equipment remains dead still besides Taliban uniforms draped over the playpen fence to dry. Glaring reminders of the nursery school that existed inside the faded pink walls just 10 days earlier. The former school now serves as the new base of the Taliban's elite special forces unit known as the Badri or the Badri Command. But it is not only home to the hardest of hard fighters who roam the grounds clad in camouflage and touting an arsenal of American-made weapons. It is also for those training to become suicide or martyrdom bombers too. This command is two parts, one high-ranking officer, whose name I later learn is Hafiz Badri, tells me in a low voice. There are those who train to be special fighters and those who train to be special suicide bombers. 
the battalion is heavily equipped with state-of-the-art American equipment, including camouflage uniforms, body armor, Humvees, night vision goggles, and full carbines and M16s. For their sidearms, the men carry shiny new Glocks and 1911 hand pistols. One has to have special actions designed for this command before being picked for training, Badri explains. As for the suicide bombers, he and a fellow top fighter, Kari Amadi Abdullah, 26, concur that they are overwhelmed with those wanting to be chosen for that esteemed cadre. It is not just about picking in this case, it is about the eagerness, Badri says with enthusiasm. There are some fighters who even come to us crying and begging, asking why don't we pick them for the suicide squad? The men say that training lasts between 40 days and six months, depending on the mission, and involves intensive tactical work and religious studies. While the fighters are now echoing a message of peace in the conquered country, there is no indication that the suicide school will cease. The men also made it clear that their heavy weaponry and building up of the Air Force is the next focus item on the agenda. We're going to be concentrating on training on the big arms, as well as the helicopters, jets, whatever is available, Amri goes on. We are training on these to show the world that we can do it. An inside look in the Taliban-run Panjshir, Afghanistan. Mist swirls around the undulating mountains dotted with mud huts, and emerald waters trickle beside the narrow, pebble-filled canals. On the surface, Panjshir Valley is a picture of serenity, but one cannot help but feel the uncertainty and tension hidden in the hills. As we travelled through all eight districts on Friday, under the eye of the Taliban, it seems clear, despite mixed reports and confusion in the past week over whether Pangaea had fallen, that Afghanistan's new ruling power had secured an undoubtedly tight grip. Dozens of robed Taliban fighters congregate outside the Pangaea Revenue Department. They all hail from Farah province, some 500 miles away, and belong to a unit rapidly deployed to places as necessary. Taliban commander Malawi Khalid claims that all of Panjir was seized three days earlier, but many Panjiris have fled to the mountains. We will give them a deadline, today or tomorrow or whatever, to surrender, Khalid said, adding that whoever does not surrender, they shoot them dead. The process of surrender, according to Khalid, is that once weapons have been checked and handed over, the individual is then issued a letter indicating that they are free to return as normal. There are roughly 8,000 Taliban members now stationed through Panjia. However, the main artery of the province, while almost entirely shuttered and abandoned, appears free from destruction. Still, frightened families are fleeing. We spot a van stuffed with people and piles of belongings strapped to the top in one case. Taliban commander Hussein Ahmad waves the driver over, his face ashen with apparent nerves, to ask why they are leaving and vowing that the Taliban will not hurt them. Everyone has gone, our families have gone to Kabul, the man says, but maybe we will be back. Despite the heavy Taliban presence from beginning to end, many analysts point out that the next few weeks are crucial in determining the outcome of the national resistance forces. The Panjiri tribal leader, Ahmad Massoud, the son of Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was assassinated by Al-Qaeda two days before the September 11 attacks, has remained firm in his call to keep fighting. And finally, for a strange observation, on Thursday I saw a Talib commander, actually a Talib soldier, outside the old U.S. embassy in the heart of Kabul, donning a Trump 2024 cap. When I asked him why, he had no idea. The other Talibs then started making fun of him. What proceeded next was a dramatic ripping of the patch to the ground. 
Truth is stranger than fiction. While it appears that the embassy remains abandoned on the inside, the outside is stripped of its former life and morals is entirely painted over with the jarring white and black Islamic emirate of Afghanistan flag.